Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. there, welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This episode is airing as a part of our COVID-19 and AI Arthritis special series that our nonprofit, the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AIA Arthritis for short, formerly known as IFAA, we created this platform where all people could truly be involved and directly in the conversation. Now, in a time when all nonprofits are doing what we can to help our communities, especially during the COVID outbreak, we're asking ourselves, how can we help? And we realized that the answer was to use the AI Arthritis Voices 360 platform to open dialogue about COVID-19, specifically about addressing concerns within our AI Arthritis community. Part of our mission is always to use a global network philosophy, reaching out to all other stakeholders who need to be at the table alongside patients to solve problems of today and tomorrow. So we're going to invite all of our global network friends to join us in the special series episodes especially those who do not have a similar platform within their own organization. Then together we can share resources and make sure you're connected to the most credible and reliable information available in time mixed with messages in an ever-changing landscape. From day to day, moment to moment, messages are changing, so we're going to really try and get good information out to you. I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Kelly Conway. I am the co-founder of AI Arthritis from the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis since, I believe, around 2002, 2003. However, my symptoms started at age 14. I clearly remember when they started. So I spent a long time getting a diagnosis. We're here tonight to talk about our high risk population and things that are going on with the community relating to the coronavirus. And my guest co host tonight is. Carice Hill. Carice, will you please introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Carice. I am in Sacramento, California, and I have ankylosing spondylitis. I've had it since I was at least 13, and I was diagnosed when I was 26. Well, so something else we have in common that's a a ways to go to get those diagnoses. Now, uh, the reason why I really wanted to do this podcast with you was because as I was listening to the news in the early stages of coronavirus hitting the United States. The one thing that was put out the most was, one, kids don't get really sick. And working with kids, that was something that I felt I needed to say to them to keep them calm. The other thing was senior citizens are going to be most likely hit the hardest and people with weak immune systems, immunocompromised or immunosuppressed people. And basically what I heard in my head was, oh, okay, I'm going to die from this virus, (laughs) which is a scary thing to think. And I literally was sitting there reading this article and thinking, oh my gosh, is this going to happen to me when you put out a post? And I was 
again, I always say you are so eloquent in the way that you write things and you get right to the point and right to the heart of the matter. And that's why I am such a big fan. But you wrote a piece. And if you would mind talking about that, because it actually everything I was feeling in that moment, being a person living with chronic illness and facing this is the population that's at risk. So when I read your piece, I I literally was like, it was an aha moment. Like, I am not alone in this. I am not being overreactive. I'm I'm not the only one. Yeah. So would you talk about that a little bit? Because yeah. that was really, that piece took off very big for you. Yeah, absolutely. So when the coronavirus was sort of first entering the United States, California ended up being the first state with a confirmed like community transmission case. And so it felt real really quickly for me. We knew that it was coming. We just didn't know when. And on February 28th, I read an article from my local newspaper in Sacramento, and it quoted my mayor saying, yes, people have died, mostly people who were in fragile condition. And I got so angry <laughs> um, and, and wrote a Facebook post about it. I quoted him, and then I wrote it and just kind of said, like, look, a huge chunk of the United States lives with disability and is immunocompromised, immunosuppressed. And I was thinking like, you know, it's not just about coronavirus. It's also about flu season, about any virus, any, any mm -hmm. really airborne germs. And so I offered language mm -hmm. that was better to use. And he ended up, his office ended up using it in a PSA later that day. The language I suggested was COVID-19 like other viruses and respiratory diseases, impacts immunocompromised folks at higher numbers and with more severe symptoms. While many will only experience mild symptoms, it's important to remember that a large percentage of the population is more vulnerable to the virus and relies on public responsibility to reduce the chances it will spread. So I offered that as like a shift away from okay, let's just like treat this whole population as if they're disposable to it's everyone else's responsibility right. to protect this population that you and I are both part of. And I ended up writing a blog post about that that took off. Well, because it, it really hit the heart of the matter. Yeah, yeah. And I've been running since with that sort of underlying message of public responsibility. It's not my job to stay home so that I don't get sick. It's everyone's job to stay home so that multiple people who can't fight it don't get sick. And that's not a way that I think we're used to thinking. Exactly. As, as a culture, of it's no. so individualistic. It, and that's a really good point. You know, it, it, hearing all of this, I watched a very old show called Charmed years ago and Three Witches, and they always fought for the greater good. And I, that term, the greater good, always stuck in my mind as something that even though that was a fictional show, I was like, yes, the greater good, like that's what you always want to strive for. And I think in a time like this, when I read, well, all those sick people need to stay home, I need to go to work. And I think what people aren't still are not understanding, I think a lot of people have come around to it, but still are not understanding that it's not about the fact that you're not going to get sick is that right. you could be a carrier mm -hmm. and spread it so easily to someone who you don't even know who is sick. 
Right. So that's going to lead me into the, the next thing that you helped really start, which was amazing, was the hashtag high risk COVID-19. I know I personally got an, a message from Molly from Then You're at Jack's who contacted me and said, hey, we're doing this tonight at nine o'clock. If you have a picture, please put it out there. And that took off as well. And mm. tell me, you know, what, how did that come about? Like, how were you talking to everybody and have this come up? Because I know it was more than Molly. I know Don was involved and Joe was involved in a lot of people. Yeah. Um, Molly, is it Schreiber? Schreiber? Yes. I don't know how Schreiber. to say her last name. <laughs> I know. That's why I just said Molly, which I feel bad. And I apologize, Molly. Um, I think you're wonderful. I just being a speech therapist, I hate mispronouncing things. Right. So there you go. Okay. I, I mean, I have a hard first name, so I totally I'm in the same place. Yeah. So Molly sent a message to um, five other people on Twitter. So it was Molly and uh, Ray Bouchard, Don Gibson, Jennifer Walker, and me on Saturday sometime in mid-March. And she was like, hey, let's start a hashtag so that people like us have space to talk about like feeling disposable and the, the mm -hmm. fact that our lives count. And so we threw back and forth a few hashtag ideas. And then I came up with the idea of high-risk COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, yeah, let's do that. So we made a plan to reach out to people and say, what time we were going to start it so that, you know, we had this critical mass of people posting with the same hashtag at the same time with a higher chance that it could, could start trending. So we each reached out to several people and then we started. Molly had the first tweet because this was her idea. Mm -hmm. And within like, I want to say 10 or 15 minutes, it was trending. And then it just exploded. It, w it happened so quickly. Yeah. It did. It happened so quickly. I, my Twitter kind of blew up and, <laughs> you know, every once in a while that happens to me, but it doesn't happen to me all the time. So I was like, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> wow. And then the next day, I think it made BuzzFeed mm -hmm. and then CNN covered it. And it seems to have been everywhere. And now there's actually an Instagram page. Yes. Where our, our high risk COVID-19 photos are being shared, which I think is really important. And again, I think we got a lot of really positive feedback because I think it just validates we were not the only ones feeling like this. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the pictures on high risk COVID-19 and it's run by Creaky Joints, who, again, I have to give a huge shout out. I think they have done a phenomenal job. When Tiffany and I were talking about the series, she had said to me, who do you think we need to include? And two of the first names I said were Carice Hill and creaky joints um, and I, I, it's the truth so all of this starts taking off and and it's just very self-affirming that okay i'm not alone and it's bigger than me and this is what i'm finding i'm very used to staying in on the weekends you know i'm too tired to go out i don't feel well enough to go out i'm very used to being alone a lot of the time mm -hmm. because of that I'm used to not going places because I am afraid of getting sick. And because I work, getting sick means I don't work. So again, I'm used to sort of self-quarantining in a not being told to do it kind of way. So it's very interesting to me. I really felt like it was eye-opening to see all of my friends who are not dealing with chronic illness mm -hmm. struggling with staying home and struggling with 
you know, I can't go see my grandmother or I can't see my my best friend because my best friend, you know, went through chemo years ago. So they're high risk. So it's very interesting to me how people slowly, especially after that was shared, started thinking, oh, you know what? I could really make someone I love very sick. Mm -hmm. So I think it was very powerful. And I think you've gotten not just you, but the whole movement. It really became a movement and it was it was important. Yeah. Yeah, it it absolutely is. It did become a movement like within an hour, really. And we realized that we'd started something big and it was giving people Mm -hmm. voice. I think it's so important to put a face to something. You can have reporters saying, oh, that you have to protect high risk people. But if they don't know what we look like, you know, they're not going to do it. Exactly. And if you look, I mean, there are children. There are very small children in Mm -hmm. this list. There are adults. There are men. There are women. There are trans. There are uh, seniors. There are people of every race, creed, religion. We're all vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think seeing our face is very important. You know, we're not the victims in this. We are a, a community that is really trying to say, hey, we are part of your world. Like, right. You know, we shouldn't have to be the ones who aren't allowed to go out. Now, it's interesting. Everything happened so quickly here on the East Coast. I remember when you had said that the first person diagnosed was actually, I think, at the hospital that you actually go to. Is that correct? Or am I imagining that? It's in my it's in my town. All right. I I don't go there, but it's it's like six miles from me. Okay, so that that's close to you. So in my area, it started. I work in one county. I live near Philadelphia. I work in one county and I live in another one. And so it started with a doctor who had seen some patients. The patients were children and they were all exposed. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like it snowballed so quickly. So as an educator, we were supposed to have a Monday to go into work, to do all these plans. And we didn't make it to that Monday. We were shut down like literally three days later. Yeah. And I think when that happened, I think everybody was like, oh, my gosh, this is so much bigger than what we thought. <laughs> and we had a staff meeting. And after the staff meeting, a bunch of uh, a union meeting, I do work for a school district, a union meeting came in and they just said, listen, people have been told if you're immunocompromised or if you have a weak immune system, you shouldn't be working. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, oh. Hey, well, everybody knows that I have the weak immune system. So I thought about it and I was like, well, you know, let me see what I can do. But if worse comes to worse, I'm going to pursue taking medical leave to protect myself. Mm-hmm. But I was surprised the next day at work how many people approached me and said, should you be working? Because mm-hmm. I am very vocal about my illness and my advocacy work. So a lot of people approached me with that question. And I honestly was like, I don't know. I don't. It was so hard to get information of what was risky. And I feel Mm -hmm. like at this point, you know, when mail comes to my house, it sits outside for 24 days. If somebody wants to risk stealing it, go ahead. Take my dog treats. Right. But um, it's not coming in. I'm going through Clorox and Clorox wipes like crazy. (laughs) All these things that we're doing to protect ourselves. But again, everything changes so quickly Mm -hmm. that. um it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. So I think for patients who sort of don't have connections like you and I might have with other patients who get information sometimes more readily than others or 
are more on top of what's coming out from the CDC and the, and the World Health Organization. You know, do you have any ways, like tangible ways where patients can be supported to get quality information or just to support each other in this time when all of us are kind of, you know, walking around with a big question mark right. in our brains is what the right thing to do is. Yeah, I think so. I've been checking the CDC and the World Health Organization pretty regularly. But I think Creaky Joints is doing an amazing job of getting reliable information out there, but also support resources. They actually started a new patient support program right. out of COVID because they realized this is going to be an ongoing need. Yeah. Um, also, I highly recommend anyone who is high risk to call their personal doctor who treats them because your doctor's the only person who's really going to know your specific scenario and situation. They may have conflicting guidance, but it's better to call them so they know that you're asking for information. I think the if you have a form of spondyloarthritis, the Spondylitis Association has also put out like a Q&A and resource document. And in general, I I want people to if you're reading like a news article, try to find the source of where the information is coming from because there's so much misinformation out there. And, you know, we live with chronic diseases. We're used to misinformation. So we're good at this. Like Mm -hmm. if we're going to survive a pandemic, disabled and chronically ill people are the best equipped in a lot of ways because we're used to being home all the time. We're always already stocked up on like the masks and the hand sanitizer Mm -hmm. and the things to keep ourselves protected when we're out in public. And I've also been telling people like, this is the time for the disabled people, and that includes chronically ill people, to teach everyone else how it is to do remote work. Exactly. And to help develop these policies for how to stay home. Because we know we're experts at it. We're also experts at finding good and good medical information. But at the same time, you know, we're we're more likely to have severe cases and even death because of our health. And so there's this juxtaposition of we know what to do, we know how to protect ourselves, but we also are relying on herd immunity more than ever before. Right. That is true. I've done all these media interviews and I'm telling everyone, look, if I get it, it's like I'm gonna. I'm planning to die if I get it. That's just the reality. I've written my will. I've finally gotten my advance directive in, and that's not because I'm like being a pessimist. It's because no. I'd rather have that plan in place so that I can live without worrying about it and not exactly. have to like scramble at the very end. Exactly. And for me, it was who's going to care for my pets. Mm-hmm. That was my big thing. My parents can't do it. They're senior citizens. My father's disabled. Right. They can't take them. And that's something I totally, I reached out to people and said, hey, listen, they thought I was being ridiculous. (laughs) And I'm like, listen, this is the reality. We don't know what's going to happen. I promise to take your kids if something happens. Like it's, and I'm not even saying that to be silly, but like, we don't know what's going to happen. Now, what I've, I have noticed within my own community, I think a lot of times my friends don't realize that I am immunocompromised as much because they don't see me as much. My neighbors tend to say, hey, we're going out. Do you need something? They see me more often. My coworkers tend to do that a little bit more often. But I think also people in our community need to not be afraid to say, hey, if anybody's going to the grocery store, 
this is what I need. Right. And I actually did that the other day. I went looking for toilet paper and acetaminophen and a few other things, things that they're saying we should have on our list. And I went out and could not find toilet paper anywhere. I got home and saw my neighbors all out in their yards, all six feet apart. And I sort of just wandered over and said, listen, anybody is out. If you see it, I said, I can't risk going into mm-hmm. the community more than one time, like every few days. So recently I would not have left my house if I didn't have a, a dog with an emergency. Mm-hmm. So I literally spent five hours sitting in my car in a parking lot of a hospital waiting for her to get seen and waiting for them to tell me what was going to happen with her. And But watching all of the precautions, it's such a new world. And I saw people in the car next to me waiting and they were getting so frustrated. And I just felt like saying, it's not like going to the vet on any, this is a whole new world. We, we have to be kind even when we're frustrated. Because honestly, I'm not working anymore because of this virus, but they still are. And they're on the front line. And I think we have to really, you know, in reaching out to our healthcare professionals, also make sure we're saying thanks. I've been tipping people at the grocery store just because thank you for doing this job and staying open because I wouldn't be able to, I don't know what I would do. And I think another thing, and I I can't remember, I think it might've been you who said it, that, you know, people who are hoarding products Many people who are on disability don't have the financial means to hoard products. Right. Yeah, I actually wrote a piece about it. I spoke to a local epidemiologist and she and I had, we were like on in a messenger conversation. I joked like, now's the time to go reverse trick-or-treating. If you've hoarded stuff, now it's the time to give it to the people who really need it. And it ended up turning into this article about you know, the way to save the planet right now is if you have hoarded toilet paper, there are people with Crohn's disease who literally need it, like need it. Exactly. If you have alcohol swabs because you're worried about needing it in the future, but you really don't need it right now, there are people who need to give diabetic shots, biologic shots that can't safely mm-hmm. do that because they can't find alcohol swabs. The same with Tylenol. And they the can't same- find alcohol. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like hand sanitizer. If you are healthy and you are less likely to have complications, share. Keep one or two masks for yourself and give the rest away to someone who really needs it. If those masks are still in their containers, there are some medical professionals who are taking those and using them. There are a lot of Facebook groups that are organizing like uh, give back kind of things and helping your community. You can join those where people are putting out calls for help. Yeah, it, don't hoard. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it's kind of, um, I've never been someone who, I'm one person, so I never had a need to bulk order anything. The only thing that comes in bulk tends to be for the furry ones living in my house, never for me. So I felt like once I set them up, I looked at what I needed and I'm like, geez, I need a lot. <laughs> I don't have a lot of things. And, you know, again, I think in the beginning, I was taking it seriously, but still sort of walking around in a daze like, well, it can't get that bad, but it is getting that bad. And I think, unfortunately, based on what, you know, medical professionals are saying, we're still sort of we are still at the tip of the iceberg. And I think we still have to be vigilant with our health and we have to make sure we're doing not just the the hand sanitizing and the washing our hands and 
and the staying in and wiping things down, but also being really vigilant about staying home. Mm-hmm. And it is for the greater good. Right. That's something that, again, I think I always thought of that term as being something cheesy from a, a an old TV show that I knew. And now I'm like, this is the time where it is about how to move forward with a population of people who are going to be, you know, healthy and and have come through this on the other end. And finding people who provide good medical information is is critical. Like you said, there's so much fake information that's out there. There's so much things that are being politicized that are getting skewed. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that I find are getting skewed a lot are the mortality rate and the fatality rate. And I admit I didn't understand it as much. My gynecologist, of all people, is uh, putting out videos and he's explaining stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he's a doctor, again, someone I trust explicitly, someone who I wouldn't think to go to in a time like this. But he's putting out these videos that are truly remarkable and give you very real information in a very calm way. And I think, again, CDC and the World Health Organization are two of the prime ones for any information based on what's happening with the virus. I agree for patients, creaky joints, I think any of our disease-specific organizations like the Arthritis Foundation, Lupus Foundation, our nonprofit, International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, I think finding platforms like this so that people can hear our voices and say, it's a validating feeling. I am not alone. And okay, I'm seeing all these people post this kind of information saying, oh, you know, the weak people should just stay home. Yeah. I think even last night on the news, a certain politician in Texas, I believe he's from, had made a comment about, I think if we gave grandparents the choice, if they wanted, you know, the country to open back up, they would take the risk of not surviving the coronavirus. And I was like, "Uh, you didn't talk to my grandparents. Um, I don't think that's a very logical thing to do. But again, I think people just can't think past themselves sometimes and well and it's it's also it's not about well i'm not gonna die it's it's about the fact that like you know someone who works in the healthcare system or that or a service industry or like the grocery store you know someone who is putting their life on the line for you exactly and if you make the decision to go do an unnecessary trip and you're a carrier you don't you're asymptomatic you don't know and someone like me who has no one else like let's say i have no one else to pick up a prescription i really need to go get and you happen mm-hmm. to brush up against me in the pharmacy you might as well have just killed me but also if you get in a car accident you're going to need to go to the hospital and if they're exactly. having to make decisions about who lives and who dies and you're kind of on the edge they're probably not going to choose you and it so it's not it, it's let's get away from the selfish mentality i mean you can literally be a superhero right now by doing nothing exactly just do nothing don't make a trip to the grocery store just to buy beer cuz you want beer I mean, that is a non-essential trip. That is not you stocking up on food you need to eat. Sure, hey, I've been drinking a lot of alcohol lately, but I'm not going to go to the store just to buy beer. Right. If I need like rice because I ran out of rice and I don't have anything else in the house, sure, I'll get beer when I get the rice. But don't make that unnecessary trip because you could literally be putting someone like me, my life, in danger. 
I also want to go back to another point uh, that you were talking about, which is reliable medical information. Some people really, like I'm one of those people who really loves to just absorb all of the medical information. That gives me, that makes me feel good because I know more. And then there are people who really are better not knowing. But regardless, it's important to take breaks. And like, I have such high anxiety right now. And so taking really intentional breaks to cuddle my cats or water my plants or like make some real food, have a Netflix party with someone, you know, with my partner five miles away. We watch and we just type messages to each other the whole time from our own beds. (laughs) Um, It's really important to take breaks because that's also going to help your immune system. Exactly. And I've limited myself in the morning when I get up, I say, Alexa, tell me the news. And (laughs) I, I hear the news and I listen to all news from every source I can think of. That's in the morning. And then I listen again once in the evening. The only thing I do is I did sign up to get my county alerts. Mm -hmm. So if anything changes in terms of restrictions or things that are closing, I do check on that. And luckily, my county, which is right outside of Philadelphia, is small, but it also it didn't have a public health department. So we weren't finding out where the virus was in my particular county. So a larger county actually absorbed our county. And now we're finding out. And it turns out in my little area, uh, we have the most people who have been diagnosed. And one day it was like three people in my township. And literally the next day, it was 11 people in my township. And I was like, you know what? I can't check that every day. I'm going to, again, like you said, I'm going to binge watch something on TV. (laughs) My neighbors and I are doing Zoom family feud nights all from our own couches. And I have to admit, being a teacher, I am so sick of Zoom right now because I <laughs> literally there I was in seven Zoom meetings yesterday. But it's a way to socially connect while you're socially distanced. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And you're right, because when I admit with my dog recently got very sick, I had to have her hospitalized. I was staying up all night. I called the hospital at three in the morning just because I couldn't sleep and I was worried. And the vet tech said to me, she's like, honey, not sleeping is so bad for your immune system. And I thought, oh, wake up, Kelly. Yes. (laughs) Or not wake up. Go to sleep, Kelly. (laughs) Like, And it's not even that I can't turn my brain off. It's just I feel like all of us are very concerned. And I, I do think we have to reach out not only just to people in our community, but I think this whole situation is going to cause a lot of people to have some very strong feelings of anxiety, strong feelings of depression that they possibly have not felt before. And I think that's something that also as uh, we as patients have been through that and understand that. And I've already spoken with Tiffany. That's a podcast that I want to do next is really talk about ways that we can still connect. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, there's all these memes going around like our grandparents went to war to save lives. And all we have to do is sit on the couch. And again, our nonprofit, IFAIA, has always said we can change the world from our, our couches, change the world from the sofa. We can save the world from our sofa, and I agree with that, but I think we also have to remember to reach out and, and again, greater good, mm-hmm. care about those people who don't often tend 
to be frustrated about things. But I wouldn't doubt I when a patient advocate, uh, I'm friends with her personally on Facebook, and I'm not going to say who it is because it was on her private page, but she had posted something on her private page about the virus and somebody really ripped her apart. Like more people die from the flu and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And again, a lot of people feel like that. Instantly, I get very upset. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I'm really going in the opposite direction because I have such anxiety. I wouldn't doubt that there's many people out there that are going in the opposite direction. And it could also be from uncertain anxiety. And they're just desperately clinging to that as well. So I think, you know, showing kindness, that's why I... I stay away from certain comments on Facebook because I'm like, you know what? Everybody has the right to their opinion and everybody is living through something that we've never lived through before. Right. So kindness is definitely important. But I would like to ask, you know, you had mentioned before, do you think that there's anything in terms of accessibility policies that maybe should come in place? Or do you think anything moving forward that in terms of policies could be put in place for situations like this in the future? Right. With the caveat that I don't think any of us know where the world is going, like how this is going right. to change us. It's, there's no way we can guess. But mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all of these like schools and workplaces are making remote work and remote school possible mm-hmm. when disabled activists have been fighting for that for decades. 2020 is the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so I am in the United States. I know we have listeners in other countries. Um, And so for all of a sudden, when non-disabled people need these accessible policies, you know, (laughs) because their lives are in danger, it just pisses us off. And I and, you know, I work in schools, so I I know things from multiple ends on that. But that is definitely something that went through my brain as well. Yeah, that people have been asking for more of that. Yeah, uh, people can look at the hashtag accessibility for abled's. A lot of people who've been uh, fighting for accessible policies, like asking to video call into a classroom, work from home, all of this thing, like telemedicine, all of a sudden it's possible. And so what I've been saying is that now that we know it's possible, Let's not stop it after COVID is over. This is how we institute these policies permanently. And that will actually, in the future, who knows when, help our economy. Because disabled people who can't like go into a workplace but still want to work will be able to work. And it'll you know, reduce the number of people on disability. It'll make workplaces more diverse. All of that. But those are the main things, like remote work policies remote school, telemedicine, not doing away with uh, like plastic straws because now we're, now people are realizing, oh, that's a sanitary issue. Like mm-hmm. we, we don't want people to drink from these cups just in case. Or like plastic utensils because stainless steel, they're not sure if they can clean them as well. All of these are actually accessible tools for disabled people like straws for me, when my neck is really flaring and I can't like tip my um, chin up, I use a straw to drink. So if I go to a restaurant and they don't have straws, then I can't drink. So that's just an example. But all of these things, we just need to develop the policies now and 
not just like throw them in the trash when the threat of COVID is over. You know what? I agree. And again, you know, working in a school district and seeing the remote education, and I will tell you, I've heard people grumbling, oh, teachers are still getting paid. I am telling you, I am putting in more hours a day trying to get materials online. And we are, unfortunately, we are limited because of rules under federal rules under IDEA, which is the Individuals mm-hmm. with Disabilities Education Act, because technically all of our students who require accommodations need to have those co- accommodations in place. And remotely, it's not always possible. Right. So that is something that honestly, none of us know how to fix. There are things that as an educator, I, I don't know I don't know what the right answer is for some of these things, but I think we have to try our best. And I I do have to say, I think teachers have really pulled up to the table because this is the first time in a long time that teachers are the ones that are taking control of this. It's not really, you know, we're not being given material and told what to do by politicians and publishers and things like that. This is all teacher based. And I hope moving forward that some of the things that we're doing do get carried over and see the value of things. There's really, we can talk forever about so many more things that are going on, but I know that uh, you're getting over being ill. And I, <laughs> I, I know everybody, and this is the other thing too. So many people that I know right now have pneumonia, have the flu, mm-hmm. have, um, I just got over a very bad case of vertigo mm. where I literally was on the floor for five hours before I could stand up. And that was actually my first experience with Teladoc. I didn't, I knew if I tried to get into the local urgent care, I'd have to be around other sick people. And I knew if I waited for my doctor, I'd have to wait two or three days to get in. So I called Teladoc and it was an amazing experience. And within 15 minutes, I had a prescription called in. Oh, that's great. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And I think opening that up, because I, I know in the rheumatology world, how many people drive four and five states just to get to, especially a pediatric rheumatologist. So yeah, this is, I think there's going to be really good things coming out of all of this. Making sure that the general public sees the faces of people who are high risk and it's not who you would expect. It's not just senior citizens. It's not people who look sick. It's not people just, you know, dying of a terminal illness. It's, it's like you said, the person at the grocery store the person delivering your pizza, yep. your, your next door neighbor. You don't know who it can be. Yep. So do you have, um, I think we talked about a lot of stuff. Is there anything else you would like to cover? I, I think you just hit a really good point, is, which is there's no look for being high risk or vulnerable. And that's again where public responsibility comes into play. Thinking about how your actions can and will impact other people that you will never meet or never know. Right. I'll just throw in that I was tested for COVID-19 on March 19th. I am negative. I found out yesterday, but I'm having a lot of breathing trouble. I'm having basically textbook (laughs) COVID-19 symptoms, which I think is, is a point that I want to address, which is that a lot of people with immune diseases that are treated immunologically, rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatic diseases, ankylosing spondylitis, a lot of our normal day-to-day symptoms 
are COVID-19 symptoms. I always have a dry cough. I constantly have inflammation in my chest that restricts my breathing. I have fluctuating temperatures because of steroids or just my body. I have gastrointestinal symptoms. Like all of those things are COVID symptoms. And when they're all happening at once, that raises your anxiety if you're in our shoes. And so I think it's important for most of our listeners to just literally take a deep breath and don't necessarily track your symptoms more than you usually do, but just be aware and be in touch with your doctors if you feel like you need to be seen. Um, you know, call ahead. Don't just show up at urgent care or the ER because then if you don't have COVID-19, you'll almost definitely be exposed to it. Right. Um, so it's, it's literally vital to kind of have a plan in place of what, what you'll do first if you feel like right. you're sick. And it seems like most of the testing is really taking on the whole drive-through aspect. Um, I had to go, to blo- go for blood work the day after our schools closed down here in this area. And I remember going in and there were signs all over the testing site saying, we do not test for COVID-19. And I was like, oh, well, okay. And then as I was driving out, there was an urgent care at the other end of the the mall area that I was in. And it said, we do not test for COVID-19. And I was like, hmm. And that day I didn't know anything yet. And I was like, huh, I wonder who is testing Mm. for it. But I do know several patients who have had the symptoms and who have not been able to get the test. And I was actually watching the local news today and uh, one of the county commissioners for a county near Philadelphia said, you know, if you have the symptoms, but they're not severe, please do not go to the doctor. And I think that's where people are confused as, well, if I have this, why am I not going to the doctor? Mm -hmm. I have a friend who lives in the UK who told me that you can't really get a test there because they don't have many unless you need a respirator. Right. And I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. But I think the push now to get more testing, and I think the state of New York is right now the epicenter in our country of where things are spreading and happening quickly, and they're doing a lot of testing. So hopefully we learn more from this. And listening to Dr. Fauci, who who speaks quite often, you know, he said we have to be flexible with what we're Mm-hmm. doing we can't say because this changes you know my my senior citizen neighbor said to me she goes i didn't realize that if i just bump into something and i touch it and then touch my face i could get sick right she said i thought somebody just had to cough on me i even saw on the news this morning that the one of the cruise ships that they emptied out i think 17 days it's been empty and they're still finding traces of the coronavirus still active Yep. On that ship. So we don't know as I bring in packages, I, you know, I wouldn't doubt that most people will end up with it. I just hope that, again, I'm wondering, too, they're saying a lot of patients are experiencing pneumonia mm-hmm. from COVID-19. And I, I don't know how long does it stay in your system and is the pneumonia part two? I don't know. I don't think any of us know. So coronavirus is what causes COVID-19 and COVID-19 mm. is the disease. So coronavirus is the mm. virus. And okay. then once you are diagnosed, you are diagnosed with the disease it causes, which is COVID-19. And in a lot of the studies I've read and just to 
preface this with the, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical researcher. I'm repeating things that I've read in uh, clinical research studies that are peer reviewed in like a vast majority, like upwards of 99% of cases um, that have been hospitalized, they've all had pneumonia. They've all had, so when they do like a CT scan, they see the pneumonia present in the lungs. And so I think pneumonia is part of the disease of COVID-19. Right. I will add to that, to everyone listening, that we probably won't know much about this virus for five years or so because the way research works is you do multiple studies where people can do controls and various variables and things. And so right now we're seeing a single study and it's been done in a hurry with people who are dying. And so every study I've read, I've let it kind of inform my thoughts and my knowledge, but I'm not taking it at face value. And I want everyone to really take that to heart and remember that science has to be repeated multiple times to prove something. And we haven't proven anything. And like you've said, Kelly, everything changes every day. And we, that's the new normal. It's not going to change anytime soon. It's going to get much, much, much worse before it gets better. And I think the more we're aware of that and can prepare ourselves for that, the better we're going to be able to respond to it mentally and emotionally. And also just kind of getting used to the reality that it's highly likely that we will all be exposed at some point if we haven't already. That is true. And that is why I am staying away from my parents and I'm keeping to myself and I'm trying to be cognizant of sheltering in place right now. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Carice. I really, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this with me tonight. I know you're not feeling well. And honestly, you are one of the patient go-tos at this point that I feel <laughs> provides really relevant, really clear, concise, and accurate information. I think you're a good source. I think your voice speaks for a lot of people. So I really do want to thank you. Thank you. Now, before we move on, we want to remind everyone that these COVID-19 and AI arthritis special episodes are just that. They're special episodes, and we're doing this as long as it's relevant to our community in this time. While we're airing them currently during our regularly scheduled program times, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in the USA on Sundays and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the USA on Wednesdays. Soon we'll be branching off to have their own airtime and we will continue airing other non-COVID-19 discussions on a separate day and time. And that will be announced in the future. And why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this so that you have a choice of when you want to be part of these COVID-19 conversations. And speaking of joining the conversation, now it's time for you to take a seat and join us. We've created a public Facebook group, COVID-19 and AI Arthritis, as part of our International Foundation for AI Arthritis page at IFAI Arthritis. You can join that group and you can continue the conversation with Carice and myself by commenting on the post in the feature episode. You can also add your questions to a designated question and answer post and find resources on our site. And we will share from reputable resources, including our many nonprofit friends from around the world and some of whom we've mentioned already. These episodes and the resources will also be located at our website at aiarthritis.org backslash COVID-19. All right. So in closing, um, I just want to say we'd love for you to join the discussion. Please check out our Facebook page and join that group. And you'll get to see where this episode is posted. So you can post right underneath that 
So now it's time for you to join the discussion. Please visit that new COVID-19 and AI arthritis Facebook page, and you'll see this episode posted. Come join me and Carice as we continue talking about this. Ask questions. Tell us what you loved about this episode. It's your turn. Join the Facebook group at IFAI Arthritis COVID-19 and AI Arthritis and pull up a seat. It's time for you to join our conversation. Carice, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciated speaking with you. And I think a lot of patients are going to really appreciate your perspective on things. So thank you. Be well, be safe, and keep using your voice because it's a very important one that many people value. Thank you. I'm so glad we did this. Me too. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. Oh,